HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. We'll start with our friend Dan Michaud, a longtime professional in the wine business who shares his story, The Power of Place, The House and Ron, who gave me Shakespeare, Miles Davis, and Winter Picnics. We recorded this in front of a live audience in February of 2020 at City Winery in Boston. Let's have a listen. Hello. I'm a storyteller usually with a glass of wine in my hand at a dinner table somewhere. So this is a first for me. It's 1973. I'm 15 years old. I'm in South Portland, Maine. And my mom is at the tail end of her second marriage. I'm the youngest of my siblings. I lived through all three of my mom's marriages. And it's a Saturday night. I know she had been dating this guy for a couple of weeks. And, and divorce papers weren't finished yet. You know, Rolling Stone Gathers No Moss was my mom. She was moving on. And so I'm hanging out on a Saturday. It's the early 70s. I'm a troubled teenager with three or four of my troubled teenager buddies doing what they do in the 70s with a mom that didn't pay a lot of attention. And up the stairs of this house comes this man who's about a little under six foot, shaved head, seersucker suit, bow tie, John Lennon rounds, driving a Fiat pumpkin orange convertible. And I'm like, who is this? And it's mom's date. He comes right in the door, sits down, and starts a conversation with myself and my friends. He knew the music we were playing, he engaged every one of my friends as the type of individual that when he spoke to you, you were the only person in the world. Uh, he eventually became the Commissioner of Education for Maine, Commissioner of Education for Alaska, and Commissioner of Education for Massachusetts under Michael Dukakis. I also met my wife through this man. Uh, my wife's here. I'm my high school sweetheart, Kimberly. And um, within three weeks, my mom and Ron got married. 
and he became the most important adult male in my life. My biological father was a wonderful man, but he was absent most of my life. And with Ron came his family, my step-siblings, and a wonderful farm in Vermont. And immediately after marriage, we started going every single weekend to Vermont. This was also a man who cooked. Immediately when my folks got married, I'd come home and he'd be cooking. And this house in Vermont became a center place for the extended family, my extended family, all my friends. It still is today. Um, it's still within the family, co-shared by the step-siblings and myself. And it brought such a um, sense of place for me, of grounding, which I had not had before, as did Kim. She actually knew my stepdad before I did. She served him clam chowder in home ec class in fifth grade, I think, um, when he was the superintendent of the local school system. So he took me to Dizzy Gillespie at the Blue Note in Manhattan. I still cook my beef stroganoff the way he, he taught me how to cook it. And fast forward, you know, 35, 40 years later, um, I've lost my mom uh, through a debilitating rare disease. I've lost my sister. Um, he buried his youngest daughter through ovarian cancer. And it's now 2018, the summer, and I realize Ron's 93. He's still living on his own in the house in Vermont. And Kim and I talked to our sons, and we need to visit Ron this summer and spend a long weekend. And giving them the full kind of idea this is important because... It, he may not be around long. So we head up into Jade Valley. The boys come up, and Kimmy and I go up, and, and I had all these grand plans for, you know, cooking for the weekend. It's something we always did there, and, and I could still see my mother and him in this, in this room dancing the Lindy to Louis Prima. It's just instantaneous, that recognition and flavors and sounds, and the place is basically unchanged for 40 years. And we arrive, and he's 93, but he's still there and very politically aware. And our first night there, we have a, just a simple roast chicken dinner. I did make him a beautiful old-school Manhattan. And I remember he, he, he looked up and he said, why are they telling me I shouldn't do this? I'm 93. We sit down at this table where we've broken so many dinners at. And uh, we have a roast chicken dinner. And Wendy, his girlfriend, is a whirling dervish. She's about yay tall. She starts cleaning up. My boys head to the back room where there's a billiard table and some tons of old-school board games. Kim wanders off there, and I sit down for a really in-depth political conversation because you know who had just gotten elected. And so we're talking some politics, and all of a sudden, he, he starts to get a little fuzzy, and he's rubbing his head. And at the tail end of dinner, my, his girlfriend had run around, and she had broken out some homemade chocolate chip cookies, passing them out to those who wanted them, and... And, uh, and, and, you know, so my stepdad, he's kind of like losing his train of thought. He said, you know, Dan, I think I'm going to call it quits. And I kind of got sad and said, oh, you know, he is 93. People lose their train of thought a little bit. The very same time, my older son comes marching from the back. He heads by me, and he heads outside. And he said, Dad, I don't feel right. My chest is pounding. He's got beads of sweat. And he's like, I really, I don't know what's wrong, Dad. I, I got to go outside. I need some air. And I'm like, ooh, what's wrong? And he's six foot three. He's 23 years old. And so that little piece of like, ooh, heart issues, young men, something. And I start to head back to find Kim to the back of the house. And here comes my younger son and Kim, who's worried about Jared. But Kim's a little giggly. And I can't understand why. I said, I may take our son to the hospital. It's not funny. But she's being a little giggly, and my younger son is going, something's wrong with Jared, Dad. He couldn't figure out how to play Stratego. 
And so I'm like, you know, there's something a little off here. My stepdad has a bedroom across from his girlfriend, Wendy, and I hear her say across the hall, Ronsky, I don't feel right. And he goes, when? I'm not quite right myself. So all of this is happening at the same time. My younger son said, Dad, did you have any cookies? And I said, no. And he said, nor did I. So Kim's outside now, uh, underneath this beautiful tree by the pond with a light rain, um, trying to figure out what's wrong with my son, who's doing deep knee bends and really kind of like getting worked up, and said, did we eat some penicillin bread with kind of mold on it? Because I'm high. And my younger one goes, it's the cookies. So we run into the kitchen, we open up the Tupperware jar, and it is just completely, obviously, marijuana butter-based cookies. When my younger stepsister was going through cancer and eventually died, she was eating edibles, and they were in the freezer, left over, with no markings on them. So I go to the little hallway. My stepdad is sitting on his bed, looking across, talking to his girlfriend. She has the door closed, and I said, tap, tap, Wendy? And she goes, yes. And she, I said, open the door. And she goes, what for? <laughs> and I said, we have figured out what the problem is. And she opens up the doors. Her eyes are this big. It's marijuana cookies. And my older son said, well, how many did you have? And she goes, I ate two. And he goes, oh, she's fucked. Because <laughs> he had one, and he's six foot three, and she's this big. My stepdad, who's the ultimate practical Yankee. He's sitting on his bed and he goes, well, now we know. Time to go to bed. And he looks down and he goes, if I could figure out how. <laughs> Everybody goes to sleep. We get up the next day. We have an incredible weekend. My stepdad started playing drums again. He hadn't played conga drums in eight years. We have an extraordinary rest of the weekend and I lost him a month later. And, but it goes down in the family history of that house as the great cookie incident. <laughs> Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Alvin Crawford tells the story about tense dinners growing up with his father and how romance changed his relationship with food. He calls the story the luckiest guy. Alvin was recorded in front of a live audience at City Winery in Boston in February of 2020. Let's have a listen. So dinner time for me growing up uh, as a kid was torture. You know, my dad's a workaholic, and so we'd always have to wait until he got home for dinner. So my mom is a teacher. She was not a great chef. So Lucky Charms, Captain Crunch was breakfast. We had Hamburger Helper, TV dinners, mac and cheese. 
So my bar for food wasn't really that high, to be honest with you. For my dad, food was transactional. And so a typical dinner time for me was really torture because my mom and my sister would eat quickly. My mom would go to the front room to grade papers and my sister would leave us to go do her homework. You know, because my dad was always working, I wanted to be there, but uh, my dad felt like dinner was a time to demand that I debate him. Like, so to really have a debate, except I wasn't really prepared for the debate. So he'd ask me questions about things and I wouldn't have answers. And so most of my meals I spent crying onto my empty plate. One night it got really, really bad because he asked me about some White House policy thing. I was like 13 at the time. And so I didn't even know what he was talking about. But I gave an answer because he forced me to, and when I gave the answer, he said it was wrong, and he was right, and I was wrong. And it just kept on going, and I couldn't take it anymore. So I ran upstairs, and I packed a bag, because I was running away. I was going to show them that I was getting out of there. And so as I ran out and started walking out the door and down the steps, I kind of said that I was going somewhere. but. Actually, my 13-year-old self had nowhere to go. So my mother had called because she heard the screen door close. like, Alvin, Alvin. And I looked in the dark at the house and realized that I was going to go home. You know, the reality is that dinner never really got better at all. And in fact, when I went off to college, my relationship with my dad was pretty strained. Even when I went back, as a young professional, like making money, he would tell me that I was a failure because I wasn't living up to his expectations. My sister was a banker and she was a failure too. And for him, what he basically said was he feared that he was going to be a one generation wonder. Now, fortunately, I went to school in Boston and got involved as a young adult in the social scene. So. You know, in Boston, the social scene also means food. At first, I started to explore things that I thought were cool, like Bertucci's. <laughs> and uh, over time, my culinary expertise got a little bit more complex. This is back in the 80s, late 80s, and I started a social calendar called The Loop. And The Loop was kind of this thing for socialites pre-internet that allowed you to kind of know what was happening in terms of food events, and also fundraisers. And so I had the opportunity to know Todd English and his paella over at Olives, spent time with Jody Adams, Lydia Shire, the girls at Upstairs at the Pudding, and just really get to emotionally connect with food. So it went from no longer a transaction and more of just this emotional experience that you shared with friends, that you shared on dates, that you shared in, in lots of different places. I got to this place where I started to actually want to make the food, and so I started to cook. And now my, one of my favorite meals is, is uh, duck confit hash with white sweet potatoes and poached eggs. So that's my thing. So, uh, you know, I've been this on and off thing with my parents, and I just have to say my dad is a pretty big deal. My, my dad grew up poor. 
dirt poor. He was the first black admitted to University of Tennessee Medical School. He went on to be a world-class pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And he's writing this book. And he called me one day and he's like, you know, my publisher keeps on talking about drama. He says, my book is too clean. He, he feels like there should be some drama. You know, you have to root for someone from behind. And he says, I can't really think of anything. And, and I said, surely, if you think hard enough, you could think of something. So he called me like a week later, and he said, what did you mean by that? Uh, I told him. I said, look, you were never home, but when you were, you were abusive. You were abusive to my mom. Dinner time, you were abusive to me. It was awful. He basically said, well, you don't understand what life was like for me as a kid. So there was no apology. There was no change in the book. No nothing, just to be clear. So now, now that I have a wife and kids, I do have a much better relationship with my parents. But I'll tell you that my wife, for her growing up, food was special and kind of everything. So emotionally, there was this connection with food. She went to, to a hospitality school, um, and she had a catering business with her father growing up. But love is in everything that she cooks. One of my favorite things that she, she cooks now are these slowly braised lamb necks with a couscous and this yellow raisin and, and saffron chutney. Just delicious. Also, one of my favorites is her, her carrot cake. She does this from scratch. Lots of love that she puts into this. It is completely irresistible. I think the best thing about life now is that she waits for me at home. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory, a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 